Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the new podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we spoke with Ed Keon, QMA managing partner, about the state of the markets and the economy. He told us why he thinks a recession is still a year out. Take a listen. Potentially historic. I don't think the markets are really counting on a great deal to come out of this one short meeting. But certainly the, the, the possibility of something dramatic happening is there. Okay, well, what about when it comes to the central bank meetings, the Federal Reserve, the ECB? Julia mentioned Brexit talks. And, of course, we're also keeping an eye on any kind of trade developments. I think the central banks have pretty much telegraphed what they're going to do. So I wouldn't expect, really, a tremendous amount of drama this week. The, the issue with the central banks is what happens a year from now. Yeah. Uh, and do they eventually go too far, as they almost always do? There's obviously a lot coming uh, in the next several days. But before we uh, talk further into that, I want to ask, why do you think markets didn't care at all about what a mess the G7 turned out to be? Because you'd think that it would have implications for NAFTA, which is a real economic story. The fact that relations between the U.S. and Canada seem to be so bad, Canadian dollar getting hit. But risk assets didn't seem to bat an eye. Well, there's a lot of name calling, uh, and after all, we have a huge. It's our biggest trading partner by far, yeah. and it's roughly in balance, which is another thing. Well, why? The, well, I'm not sure why all the name calling, given that we have roughly, including trades and services, about in balance. But I think markets have seen this before, where there's some drama, but it doesn't necessarily have an economic impact at the end of the day. Or they assume it won't. They well, that's right. Used to looking through. Headline risk where the president's concerned. Well, I think it's right. For, so if we do have a trade war, in other words, this goes into real economic activity as opposed to just name-calling, then obviously markets will react in a negative way. So you've done research on what typically causes mm. bear markets. You have this great um, acronym for it, RSVP, recessions, shocks, valuation, and policy mistakes. Which ones can we write off there? Well, valuations have come down this year. Uh, so stock prices are up about 5%, but we're going to get about a 20% jump in earnings this year. So actually you're getting a little bit better value than mm. you started. So that's gone down in, in, our, in our worries. Shocks, it seems like there's a lot of potential shocks out there, and a lot, many of them, but uh, by definition you can't predict that. So that's why they call them shocks. So the two big issues are when are we going to go into the next recession and what policy are we going to have along the way? I think a recession is still at least a year out. 
Uh, and on the policy front, it looks like in the short run, we know exactly what the Fed is going to do. And it's just a question of do they get to, to the point where it's too much in 2019 or 2020 or later. So it comes down to earnings growth, ultimately, as a decider for where the stock market goes. And total returns here today have not been bad. Yeah, so, you know, we're about 5% up, yeah. about halfway through the year. So we're on, on track for about a 10% year, which is a very good year, especially after the tremendous year we had last year. And the market is always about earnings in the long run. And we're getting a great year for earnings growth this year. And analysts, so far at least, expect it to continue into next year. It doesn't feel like it, though, does it? It doesn't feel like a year in which, at this rate, we'd go up uh, 10%. You know, it's, I think it's partially just we've had such a smooth ride last year right. that this feels very volatile. This is what the market is like. This is the way the market normally behaves. So we are, obviously, lately we're on a pretty nice run. Uh, is all that, I mean, I don't know what happened between February and now where you had all of these bouts and some pretty intense sell-offs. There's probably a lot of stories you could tell, but do you feel like that's over for now? I wouldn't say it's over, right? and I think it's reasonable to expect continued volatility again, because this is normal. Yeah. This is not abnormal. This is what the market normally does. And we'll see headlines push things around. But, you know, most of these headlines have been basically one-day events as far as the market's concerned. Yes. The headlines that have stuck, that have been consistent and persistent, is what you talked about in currencies, which is those emerging markets. Yeah, absolutely. And we even saw that even continuing in the back end of last week as well. You're adding to EM exposure here. Hmm. Yes, we've been adding, but, but through a strategy that doesn't necessarily always be in emerging markets. It looks for value at currency and industry pairs. And then it looks for value around the world, and it's finding a lot of them in emerging markets. So if you look at India from a top-down perspective, you say India stocks look pretty expensive. If you look at software stocks, a lot of software stocks look pretty expensive. But actually, Indian software stocks look like pretty good value hmm. compared to the rest of the world. So I think a little bit different strategy, but one I think it has an opportunity to find value in many places around the globe. So what do you sell against it, then, if you're saying... Indian software stocks, what are you offsetting that with? Well, we're underweight bonds. Yeah, so fine. within our multi-asset portfolio, we are overweight stocks, especially U.S. stocks and emerging market stocks. And we are dramatically underweight bonds in the portfolios, at least from our, from our, within our constraints that we have. So that's why we finance these trades, is by being, being underweight bonds. Interesting. So you don't actually do an RV trade, a relative value trade in EM. You don't look at India or in another country and do that. You actually are willing to offset it with a, a short bond That's right. So portfolio. we have some long-short strategies, yeah. but one I described is a long-short yeah. strategy. With, with regards to being underweight bonds, is that specifically uh, on rate concerns? And if so... Where do you see rates potentially going? Mm. Well, in my opinion, uh, rates are going to continue to go higher. I think U.S. economic growth is going to be pretty strong this year. And the combination of the Fed raising rates and continued strong growth, I think, will push the 10-year over 3% in a sustainable way. And it's going to be hard to make money in the bond market this year, I think. Do we get to 4% on the 10-year? You know, I don't think so. I still think we are fundamentally in a, a low, long-term inflation environment. Nothing woke up in the short run. But I think, I think even it's a hard to measure inflation. I think things like price discovery on the Internet, not, I think that's actually keeping prices quite low. Mm. Do we only get there if the economy can sustain it? Do we get a situation where the, the back end of the curve is, is higher and actually that is a problem for, for other asset classes? Or you know, does the fundamentals actually... Back it up. Well, eventually, interest rates almost always go too high and almost always result in a recession. Okay. So when that will happen this time around, well, I suppose it's conceivable that it doesn't, but we don't think it's going to happen this year and maybe not next year. And there's that P in RSV. I was about to say, mistakes. yeah. And that's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. So, that's Just not this year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and again, you never can tell. It's, there's, 
And I, and I think the, the Fed doesn't know, I don't think any of us know, what the real long-run interest rate, sustainable interest rate is. But fortunately, we have some of the world's experts, including John Williams of the New York Fed, yeah. who are among those who have studied this issue more than anybody else. And we also spoke with Bloomberg opinion columnist Joe Nocera about why the government went after the wrong deal with AT&T Time Warner. No, I'm not saying it's politics. I'm saying it's dumb. (laughs) Um, I don't think we don't really know whether Trump picked up the phone and said the president picked up the phone and said to the new antitrust chief, you know, go after AT&T because uh, go after that deal because I hate CNN so much. Although he does hate CNN and he is on record as being against the deal. But it is certainly true that uh, a man who was an antitrust uh, expert who was on the record as saying there's no big deal with this deal when he was a professor suddenly found problems with the deal when he became uh, the, the head of the antitrust department. And as I say, as, and as the judge really showed yesterday, um, they're, they're, the, the arguments were extraordinarily weak and it didn't reflect how the real world works. And they got their head handed to them. And the real issue here, as you point out, is not this setback per se, but that antitrust is becoming a bigger and bigger deal because Absolutely. we have these incredibly yeah. powerful companies and not, and they're going to need real scrutiny potentially. A lot of right. people are calling for it. In your view, this has been a setback. I, I think it's a big setback. I think it's going to make them uh, nervous about going after the next one. Look, if Compact Excuse me, compact. If Comcast they're gets, not a, they're yeah, not right, a, yeah, they're, they're off the back. We had that deal about 15 years ago. Um, uh, if they succeed in getting Fox, that is worth that. That's a horizontal deal. That's a very different deal, and that deserves real scrutiny. Out in Silicon Valley, you know, the next time Facebook wants to take over a company, that deserves real scrutiny. Yeah. All these healthcare mergers that are going to take place, that are going to actually yes. integrate PBMs and so on, you know, those are much more difficult deals than ATT, AT&T uh, and Time Warner, which is basically, you know, in my opinion, the blind leading the blind. Now, Facebook buying, I don't know who they buy next, some app, is not necessarily going to be perfectly analogous to uh, this deal, AT&T buying Time Warner, but is the setback big enough that it really harms those efforts, or is it just that they'll be gun-shy? Well, I think it's both. I mean, I think it's gun-shy, but the only way you're going to change, uh, the only way you're going to be able to tackle big tech is is the antitrust, the theory of antitrust has to start to change, and it has to start to tighten. It's been really loose since Robert Bork wrote his famous book in 1978, and it needs to tighten, and and the rules need to change. And the only way you can do that is to be aggressive in court and to say, you know, Your Honor, um, uh, this this goes under Section 2 as the way we used to define it, not the way that we're defining it right this minute. Um, You know, I I would argue that Facebook should never have been allowed to buy WhatsApp, but that would have been a tough tough argument to make, because WhatsApp could now be a legitimate uh, competitor as Facebook is is facing problems. You wanted an environment, an antitrust environment that could evolve, that could reshape, that could tackle tech cleverly, I think. And and in your article, you say, look, you you hoped that he was the guy to do this, and and now you think that hope is lost. Right. Well, yes, I think he has shown himself to be somebody who's not going to rock the boat in terms of this administration. And, um, you know, I I just don't think he has a... I think he's hurt himself in terms of his ability to make tougher arguments because he made such a bad argument the first time out of the block. I guess that's how I would put it. And yet this administration has an issue with Amazon. 
So if you're tackling Amazon, then you've kind of got an administration that's on your side. So to make the same argument, but in reverse, but, as far but, as Amazon is concerned, then but, maybe this is a good thing. No, it's not. It's a terrible thing. Because if he goes after Amazon, once again, he looks like he's doing the president's bidding instead of acting as an independent-minded mm-hmm. uh, antitrust. But there's an argument the, for going against I'm, I'm talking about on a relative strength of argument case. He has a far better chance of looking at the Amazon business and going, okay, we have a situation here, then looking at the AT&T and building a case there, which the judge was clear was bad. Right. But Amazon's a tough case to make. Amazon, I agree with you. They, they, they do a lot of things that have monopoly overtones. But, but it's a very tough case to make because that's a classic kind of case where we have to kind of change the rules of antitrust to do it. Yeah. And, um, but but I, I'm going to go back to what I just said because yes. I think it's really important. The If you go after Amazon as a member of the Justice Department, you look like you are carrying out uh, Trump's revenge, and you look like you're ignoring the rule of law. Our entire capitalist system is built around the rule of law. And if you start to mess with the rule of law, and if you start to play this as it it appears to be uh, 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 the actions of an autocrat that you're carrying out, you are destroying much of what's great about American business. So I think that's a real problem. So that's not a Del Rahim problem, that's a presidential problem. Well, it's a Del Rahim problem if he goes after Amazon because it looks like he's doing Trump's bidding. And Ian Shepardson, Pantheon Macroeconomics chief economist, discussed the global economy and why he thinks we could see a pickup in wage growth. Yeah, so the headline rate's been boosted by energy prices. That's not a big deal. Yeah, everybody knows that oil prices have gone up. That's pushed up retail gas prices. The core rate is only 2.2%. It is rising, but it's not rising very fast. And some of the components where we saw some increases uh, in the main numbers, things like lodging, you know, hotel room rates, they're super volatile, and probably next month it'll go back down again. So the underlying trend increase in the core is still pretty slow. So what's driving the Fed to raise rates isn't today's inflation rate. It isn't the path of inflation right now. It's the idea that the strong growth that we're enjoying at the moment, and and the economy is certainly firing on all cylinders right now, is going to generate faster inflation in the future. So they're kind of trying to preempt that rather than deal with a current inflation problem today. I'm sure they'd prefer the headline rate not to be at 2.8%. They would prefer that gas prices hadn't shot up in the last few months. But I think unless that starts to filter through into faster wage increases, it's probably not something they're worrying too much about. They are thinking much further down the line and where will we be you know a year from now if uh, the unemployment rate continues to fall and reaches levels that we haven't seen for 50 years plus you know, that's really what's focusing their attention at the moment Ian, how can the fed be confident that inflation is going to pick up at some point or really accelerate when the unemployment rate has already fell fallen well below what they used to think was full employment without uh, a meaningful inflation pickup yeah, well, wage growth has picked up. So, you know, the broadest measure of wage growth is nudging 3% now, and a couple of years ago it was more like 2%. So there has been a pickup. It hasn't been as big as a lot of people expected, and that's possibly because inflation expectations among uh, employees are still pretty low uh, after, you know, 10 years after the crash, which really crushed inflation expectations. There's still sort of lingering echoes of that in, in the way people think about inflation. They've got used to it being very low, and so they haven't really demanded bigger raises to compensate for it. But inflation's now going up. You know, gas prices are 
are higher, uh, rents are rising, and uh, medical inflation, which has been very low since the advent of Obamacare, has turned up again as well. So there's a few things that I think, together with the very tight labor market, suggest that actually we're finally going to see a bit more of a pickup in wage growth. And that's what the Fed is thinking about. Of course, they don't tell us what their wages forecasts are. They tell us what their unemployment forecast is and their inflation forecast. But we don't know exactly what they're expecting for wages. But my guess is that they are expecting some sort of moderate pickup over the next year or so. And that's what they're seeking to contain. They don't want to prevent it. They quite like people to get bigger raises, but they don't want people to get too big a raise. Do you think it's also on the employer's side as well? They think it's too late in the cycle to be raising wages. If they can possibly get away with it, they won't, because as sticky as inflation as wages are to uh, to rise, they're kind of also sticky on the downside if you're trying to reduce wages in a slower economic environment. Well, I think at any given point, where, no matter where you are on the cycle, employers pr- pay as little as they can get away with. You know, if, if they can contain uh, employees' wages, they're going to do it no matter what, where we are. Uh, what's different now, of course, is that if they don't remain competitive on the pay front and employees leave to go to a better paying competitor, then the firm that hasn't paid enough is going to have the devil's own job replacing the people who've left because the unemployment rate is now extremely low. And if we look at surveys of businesses, you know, what are companies saying about how hard it is to recruit people? Well, off the charts. Uh, and so they know, I think, increasingly that the game is kind of up now. And uh, my guess is that if the employees come knocking on the door and saying, hey, you know, our productivity is up, inflation is up, we need to get paid for those things, I don't think companies have got much of a defense anymore. And so I, I think it's, it's reasonable now to start thinking that finally we're going to get a more broad-based pickup in wage growth. And I think that's what the Fed is beginning to think as well, or most of them anyway. Yeah, we keep coming back to this argument. You have to pay your employees to stay. Well, maybe we'll test it out someday here. <laughs> I keep just saying it on air right now. Uh, Ian, the rate hike tomorrow is, you know, no, there's no ambiguity about that. What has the potential to be the most interesting surprise uh, from the FOMC tomorrow? Well, I guess the thing is whether they'll add a, a fourth rate hike to the expectations for this year, because they've been projecting three. Markets are kind of happy with three. Some people, myself included, think they will end up doing four. Uh, and so they could tell us tomorrow that they're going to do four this year. Uh, my guess is they probably won't. So in terms of scope for surprises, that's, that would be the big one. I think it's a bit too early. I don't think they feel boxed into a corner yet sufficiently that they have to say they're going to do a fourth hike this year. I think they can afford to wait through the summer and see what happens. So that would certainly be a surprise. And the other thing is the language of the statement. Because every, every six weeks, these FOMC statements say three things that are very important. They say inflation expectations are low and little changed. They say the risks to the economy are roughly balanced. And they say that they're going to be raising rates gradually. So a change to any one of those three things would be a really big deal and very surprising. I think, again, it's too early to see that. But you know, talking about what might grab the attention of the markets when we're all focused on the Trump-Kim summit and all sorts of other stuff, that would definitely do it. That would make markets sit up and take notice. And it probably wouldn't be very, very pretty in the stock market. Well, speaking of boxing yourself into a corner, did the ECB do that when an ECB official said that they will definitely discuss um, the beginnings of, of winding down the QE program? Has it built up expectations to the point where investors are expecting some kind of statement or some kind of definitive remark? I think so, yes. It would, be, it would be quite a surprise now if they didn't. So I think that was a pretty clear signal that, um, that the QE program, the wind down, is coming later this year between September uh, and December. Uh, not because the economy is going gangbusters. The first half of the year so far has been pretty disappointing in terms of growth. And not because inflation is rampant. It isn't. But because uh, I think that, that looking ahead, they don't want to continue with the stimulus program on the scale that they have been. So the cat's out of the bag. And yeah, it would be a surprise now if they didn't say something pretty clear along the lines of their intention 
intention is to begin the, the tapering process later this year. I, I think that's now, well, not quite a done deal, but it's pretty likely. That's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to watch our Daily Market Close Show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.